The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to Sex Lives, New York Magazine's podcast about sex. I'm Maureen O'Connor, and this week we are talking about the lesbian issue, both issues pertaining to lesbians and the boldly named internet magazine from Slate's Outward blog, which featured about a dozen articles exploring what lesbian means today. Here to discuss that is Outward editor and host of the Double X Gab Fest, June Thomas. Hello, June. Hey, Maureen. And joining us from Washington, D.C. is Slate staff writer Christina Carucci. Hello, Christina. Hi. A good place to start, June, is how did this sort of topic and line of inquiry come up? What was on your mind when you decided to sort of go deep on the state of the modern lesbian? I should first of all give a ton of credit to my co-editor at Outward, Brian Lauder, who I think in some ways really pushed me to also get on board with this. It feels like it's just my life and, uh-huh. uh, you know, the way that you don't always examine the things that you're closest to. But I think what originated it was the recent closure of After Ellen, which was an entertainment website mm-hmm. for queer women and was, as a piece that was in The Lesbian Issue by Ray Binstock noted, was just as bland and unshocking as the woman it's named for. Uh-huh. You know, it's just a, a pleasing, pleasant roundup of entertainment news and interviews and, and sort of slight gossip. And if even that couldn't survive what hope was there for any lesbian-focused business or website or anything? Um, and so we wanted to know why, you know, in the in this age where supposedly LGBTQ people are, you know, facing less discrimination, are getting rights, why can't a business aimed at women who love and sleep with women, why can't they thrive? Is that something that you think has consistently been the case? Or do you think that it's gotten more difficult? I think it's always been the case. You know, there's always been a problem with lesbian bars. There have always been far, far, far fewer than bars for men or even mixed bars, although those tend to be pretty thin on the ground too. That also has been happening recently too. And it it feels different now when, you know, the rights situation is different and where there's, Mm -hmm. you know, every time you turn on the TV... There's some people kissing a member of the same sex. So why can't a bar or a website survive in this environment? Is that sort of there's a lot of visibility and then you sort of see something still lacking? That's exactly right. Yes. I wonder if, Christina, that might speak to the essay that you wrote that I found really interesting. You wrote about being a queer woman who resists the term lesbian. Why is that? This is something that my friends and I talk about probably too much, I think, uh, It's tough because from the outside, many of us are what pretty much anyone would call lesbians. We are women, identified women, who uh, primarily sleep with and date other people who identify as women. But as a practical sense, our friend groups and the people we consider our peers aren't all women. A lot of us have had relationships currently or in the past with men, cis men, trans men. A lot of us are genderqueer or have partners who are. Um, so the term lesbian uh, is like a pretty discreet box around women. And so a lot of people feel that whether it's because of themselves or the people that they associate with, uh, as a practical matter, it just doesn't apply. And some of it is political, too, the idea that there's not 
a gender binary. And so trying to divide sexuality into something that's just either women or men isn't an accurate way to describe the world. Would you use the word lesbian like I'm in a lesbian relationship right now? Do you mean the the term in terms of like how you personally identify as yourself? Um, I'm just curious sort of how the different words sort of play out between lesbian, queer, and whatever other terminology comes up. I would tend to use the word uh, lesbian to describe myself in a political way. I think it's a really Mm -hmm. powerful term. And that's one reason why I I don't want the term to die. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy for people to understand when they're not a part of queer communities. I think the term lesbian relationship is kind of funny, like the term gay marriage, (laughs) like, well, it's it's marriage. And then the people who in it are gay. People would also draw a line between a lesbian relationship and, say, a queer relationship, which would tend to subvert in any number of ways the sort of uh, heteronormative or or homonormative, as the case may be, uh, norms in a relationship. You guys both in your respective articles in this package note the sort of the way lesbian culture seems to have less of a either mainstream or just really bright lines around it the way gay male culture does. I mean, do you think that there's something about being a woman that just inherently makes you question the edges of gender in some way? This is what I was thinking of when I was reading your article, Christina, in particular. Definitely. I think part of that has to do with just uh, patriarchy in general, which gives women a lot more room to experiment with gender than it gives men. Um, And so women can be tomboys, they can wear pants and have short hair and not be, you know, considered too masculine to be a woman. Um, Whereas men, there's sort of a a limited spectrum of gender presentation and sexuality by which a man could still be considered like an acceptable man or a straight man. Um, And so, yeah, I think women probably think a lot more about gender and the way that they present gender uh, than men. And especially when it comes to sexuality, um, a lot of people just sort of assume women, oh, it's sort of like, you know, heteroflexible or like all women have uh, queer fantasies to some extent. And it's hot when straight women make out with <laughs> each other. Whereas for men, if there's even like a toe dipped in <laughs> anything besides heterosexuality, the whole rest of the body becomes gay. Did you always sort of identify as queer? Like, have you always identified that way? I've always felt more queer than lesbian just because I have dated many men in my life. For a long time, I was only dating men. And, you know, I've dated trans men uh, Mm -hmm. in relationships that were very queer. I would never consider those straight relationships. And I never felt like my sexuality was binary, that I was only attracted to one gender or one gender presentation. Um, And so, yeah, I always felt that that term explained my identity more. And that's how I came out to my parents, which was hard Uh for them because it was like, what even is that? (laughs) What did you say? How did you explain that? I was like, well, you know, you can think of it as bisexual, but that's not exactly what I mean. But for you, if you want to think of it as like, you know, a sexuality that can go in any number of directions, that's one way to think about it. I think as I've gotten older and my identity and my partners and my friend groups have gotten more specifically queer. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that to my parents and other people who uh, know less about the nuances of queer communities, I I would feel more comfortable identifying as a lesbian. Oh, interesting. Why do you think that that term has that sort of political power that you just said? Like, in what context do you find that word in particular to feel different or 
there's no doubt about what it is. Whereas today, I think I, I mentioned this in the article too, in my essay, it's tough because a lot of younger people who most people would consider straight, they're in relationships that look straight from the outside, are starting to identify as queer in more of a political way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, recognizing that gender and sexuality are fluid. So there's something powerful to say, you know, not only am I queer, but I sleep with women. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have this part of my identity that that uh, challenges the norms and that my relationship attracts more scrutiny and more uh, capacity for discrimination than yours. Yeah. June, you wrote a little bit about the way the sort of political power of the term lesbian and the way that sort of that played out for you mm-hmm. sort of directly tied to feminism. Right. Can you say a little about that? Yeah. So I guess one thing that's important to note is that I'm, I think, at least a couple of decades older than Christina, maybe three. I'm in my early 50s, and I'm going to keep saying early 50s for as long as I possibly can stretch that to be true. (laughs) Um, And I did grow up in a different time. I mean, there have always been lesbians. There have always been queer people. There have always been bisexuals. There have always these communities and identities have always existed. Mm -hmm. But when I was coming up, it was a really powerful and risky political statement to identify as a lesbian or to claim yourself and and tell people and to come out and to, uh-huh. you know, you were often breaking news to people like, what is that? You know, and you, you were doing so much education all the time. And being a lesbian feminist was a really clear identity, was a very, again, a very powerful identity. And as always, there were different tribes of lesbians and there were certainly mm-hmm. the, you know, the softball dykes and the the bar dykes and the women who've, you know, never had a conversation about feminism and so proclaiming your membership in a particular group uh, was very important and very key to survival and to happiness. And it makes me feel bad that today I hear a lot of my peers, maybe not my age peers, but my peers in queerness and in politicalness and in all those communities reject an identity that was so important to me mm-hmm. because it feels like a rejection of those women. And some of those women, you know, one reason that a lot of young women who sleep with women uh, reject lesbian is because of uh, TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Mm -hmm. And as someone who considers myself a radical feminist but not trans-exclusionary and not transphobic, I understand why that rejection happens. I, too, reject TERFs, although I do want to communicate with them. Do they literally... Say, I am a TERF, or this is an external? I think they think that's a slur, but they would never deny that they're trans-exclusionary. They don't don't recognize trans women as women. Mm -hmm. I certainly am not in their fold on that particular area, but I feel bad that today, for many young queer women, lesbian is almost a slur because it's associated. Everything that happened before, I don't know, the year 2000 is just dismissed. And I kind of want to go around and, and like do presentations. And so, you know, the, the women in the, the, the lesbian feminists in the 70s, 80s were did some amazing things. And, you know, we mustn't dismiss them. Well, that's a hard thing too dealing with that 
in many areas, I think, of like progressivism or, I mean, just culture in general, feeling like there were elements of the ideology that we want to sort of cast off in the moment when you think, do we just throw it all out or do we... Do we gloss it over? How do you, I mean... Yeah, it's tricky because there isn't a lot of historical knowledge, not because we're, you know, young women are lazy or, or you know, it, it, there's no easy explanation for why not. It's just that women always are a little bit on the edge. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the kinds of publications that were, you know, where the, their agendas and their manifestos were published are really hard to find now. Um, yeah. So it's... and. It's just really hard to communicate with those women. And and again, since the physical spaces are disappearing Mm -hmm. and since even, you know, even when there were more bars, it's not like young women socialize with older women. I mean, there's just very few places where there's actual contact between young queer women and older queer women. Do you think that's different than other parts of the LGBTQ community? I'm not sure because certainly I'm not about to make a claim that, uh, you know, gay men are, are have no ageism because we all know that that is nonsense. Mm-hmm. At the same to society at large, yeah, perhaps. society at large <laughs> has this. But I think there is a there's a particular. It seems to me, and maybe just you know, because it's it's my world and my obsession that it it feels like the rejection feels the rejection and the lack of contact feels really strong and really tragic. It strikes me that of the sort of radical changes, um, not just radical in terms of like radical feminism, but just the light years of changes, even the last couple of decades, it's that not only is our understanding of sort of sexuality changing, but our understanding of women is like all of those things simultaneously seems like it would just be an extraordinary amount for any community to bear or yeah. to stick together through. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also for myriad reasons, uh, queer women have tended to be more politically active, uh, self-critical, and demand a lot of their movement in a way that I think um, larger and more mainstream movements for rights haven't been. So uh, when it comes to, let's say, dealing with uh, TERFs, uh, Mm. there's really a sense of like, you know, zero tolerance, which I think is fine. Um, But it also means that there's little room for uh, communication and education and knowledge sharing. Um, And I I think that it would be really great if there was a way to uh, keep the good and to learn from our elders. And I think there's a hunger for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, recognizing that the context of what was happening decades ago is, like you said, light years away from the context of today's discussions of politics and gender. Just today, uh, I saw a parallel in this op-ed in the Washington Post about Susan B. Anthony and the Women's March and how mm-hmm. these people were claiming she wouldn't come to the Women's March. She wouldn't have come to the Women's well, March no, if she were alive. To, her ghost really will old. not be attending. I mean, yeah, she goodness, will she can't stand that long anymore. Around. She'll stay in her grave because <laughs> she's been lying down for quite a while anti-abortion. now. Yeah, um, and you know it's it's hard to rip these things out of their historical mm-hmm. context. I think it's not helpful in a lot of ways, um, and. Yeah, I think in a lot of movements, there's a hesitancy to engage with our elders and historical figures who don't share the same politics that we have now. Yeah. And it's interesting because it is both a sexual 
identity and for many of us, a political movement. Mm -hmm. And so you have this kind of schismatic nature and this, you know, crit self-crit element that is a as something that you usually see in political organizations or political yeah. movements. And also simultaneously, you know, love affairs and, and breakups and, you know, collective meetings were always fun because you had uh, both political uh, arguments and you know, falling out with lovers and, and you know, relationship drama going on. Um, so I don't know that that is exclusive to lesbians or to the LGBTQ movement, but I think it's always been, it's always added an extra level of uh, complication. And I have to say a pleasure to uh, to our organizing and organizations. Yeah. What does this sort of shift in, because we've talked a lot about sort of the political element of which sort of terminology you use or how you define your community. What do you guys think that does on a sort of social level to I dating or to, you know, living and finding people to date and fall in love with or be with? I have a a personal hole in my heart for phase one, the lesbian bar in D.C., which was the oldest running one in the country until it closed down about two years ago. Um, I had my first kiss with my longtime partner there mm -hmm. something like five years ago. I have a lot of friends whose relationships started there. It's gone. And I do wonder what, you know, the new people, the, the young women moving to D.C., where they'll find their partners. Of course, now there's online dating and, mm -hmm. or dating apps. I don't even know what, what kind of dating things are happening right now, but <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, on your phone. And I think that's helpful, but also not a substitute for IRL meeting places because also sometimes you just want to meet friends and it's not always about finding somebody to sleep with or go on a date mm -hmm. with. Um, it's about building community and uh, that's something that is hard or is sometimes even impossible to find in anything but the biggest and queerest cities now. I'm planning a mm -hmm. trip to Miami for next month and I spent about an hour going down a rabbit hole trying to find where the queers hang out in Miami who aren't gay men. And, you know, it was just like a maze of broken <laughs> links and defunct websites and parties that are no longer and bars that have shut down. Um, and it was really sad because even just five years ago, I didn't have the same trouble when I was visiting a new place. Mm -hmm. You know what? Even if you're in a monogamous relationship, that's the moment when you need to have a dating app because the number one use for <laughs> dating apps is when you're traveling, you say, mm -hmm. hey, what bars do you go to? Just kidding. I don't actually want to date you at those bars. But if we were to go on a date, That's where would we go? That's a great strategy. I'm actually going to do that, I think. I have to say, entering a relationship has, like, wildly changed the way I travel. And that is the number one thing is that I'm like, how do how do people find out where they hang out if they're not sleeping with each other? Mm -hmm. I don't even know. <laughs> I, June, it, yeah. it strikes me that, that, or that sort of feeling of the community being sort of particulated into individuals, you know, on the Internet, that strikes me as sort of running parallel to something you wrote about, which was, you know, the diminishing power of the feminist bookstore. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, this, it's the same thing. You know, the, when I would go to a new place, I would always go to the feminist bookstore if they had, if this place I was going to had one, and many of them did, if it was a decent sized town or a college town. And there you could find the bar, there you could find the meetings or the drum circle or the AA meeting if that's what you wanted to, uh, if that's what you needed. And, uh, you know, clearly we always think now of the internet is the place that connects us all, but it doesn't. We do find these mm -hmm. um, these holes in the web 
But I do, you know, as, as somebody who is a little older, I do now find it very hard to socialize with people my own age. I never do, except for my mm. partner. Um, but, you know, I hang out with people who I work with who are generally younger um, or I, you know, know writers who are generally younger. And it's very hard to just find that social group. You know, I've been in, in New York now for 12 years and I don't think I've met or made more than maybe two or three friends of my own age who are queer women. I think they would all call themselves lesbian. Um, and that's that seems sad. And also, I mean, I don't make much effort because I'm a hermit, but it's weird. And it, it is oddly difficult even for a journalist who is supposed to know how to find things. <laughs> Finding friendship, always yeah, exactly. the hardest of them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do you guys read Hipster Broke My Gaydar? the op-ed in the Sunday Review by Krista Burton about how modern culture had sort of caught up and taken on all of the things she always thought of as traditionally signs of being a lesbian? Yes, I did. Uh, yes, ma'am. Do you have thoughts? It sounds like perhaps you so do, many Christina. Thoughts. Yes. <laughs> First of all, I was pleased because I had just called out Krista Burton's old blog, Effing Dykes, in a piece that I had written in the Lesbian Issue the week before because that was a blog that was so important to me when I was coming ah. out. And yeah, so it felt a little bit like kismet when she just published this op-ed the very next week because I hadn't read any of her writing since the blog shut down. But um I think about this uh, way too much about how to find other queer women. Do I look enough like a queer person? <laughs> uh -huh. What do people think when they look at me? You know, do they think me and my partner are sisters, which they do way too often? <laughs> and so how can I differentiate myself from <laughs> other sisters and also straight people? Um, I think that's a moment but, when you just start making out with each other, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You wouldn't believe how many random people on the subway will just say, are you guys sisters? <laughs> Why like, do people? Like you would just ask anybody if they're just sisters with somebody. Of all the just things we need to define, we need to know to if me. you share yeah. DNA right, is right, like right. one of the stranger ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. um. <laughs> about a year and a half ago, I wrote a thing in Slate about growing out my side shave. I had the side of my head mm -hmm. shaved for many Oh my God, years. that is a brutal thing to grow out. <laughs> oh my God, it, you're Was telling it as brutal me. as I'm imagining? Okay. <laughs> Luckily, I have very thick hair, so I just flipped one side over into a bob, and it sort of grew out underneath on its own. But Luckily, I'm thick, happy that hair. it's fully grown out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to brag. Um, but yeah, one of the reasons why I finally decided to grow it out was that it felt like it didn't have the same sort of significance anymore, that I was meeting so many women who had various parts of their heads shaved who weren't queer. And that used to be a very queer thing to do, or at uh -huh. least, you know, punk and alternative. And now it was like the lady at Ann Taylor Loft has a side <laughs> shave, and I did not want to be associated with that anymore. Um, I... I'm constantly looking for ways that we can stand out to each other. Again, I think it's one of the big differences between how gay men and queer women find each other is that among queer women, there's a far wider range of gender presentation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's like really high femme to really butch, butch uh, among people who identify as women. You know, among gay men, it's a, a much narrower spectrum because there's little space for men in mainstream society to say wear a dress or mm -hmm. you know have their hair in french braids which i think is a shame <laughs> um, so i was happy that krista burton wrote that piece i wrote another piece for the lesbian issue about carabiners and how to me that mm -hmm. feels like a lingering symbol of queerness that straight women won't necessarily 
catch on to because it's straight women carry purses a lot. Yeah. And so yeah. they don't need to put their keys on their belts. True. For me, there was an element of we, we you know, sometimes in meetings when, you know, people just in general are talking about stuff and something comes up and I'll say, we did that first or we used to, we've done that for decades. And uh-huh. I'm talking about things like, you know, sliding scale entrance fees or potlucks or, uh, you know, American Sign Language interpretation, you know, the, the things that were part of the lesbian community in like 1982, you know, come into the mainstream or straight community, you know, 20, 30 years later. And I always want to sort of stand up and say, we've been doing that forever. <laughs> um, and, you know, she very uh, uh-huh. nicely mentioned a few of those things without being too uh, What struck me? What struck me about that is that we seem to always know when we're getting elements of gay male culture that's being mainstreamed that and I don't know if it's just that it's sort of demarcated in certain ways or there's a certain amount of celebrity associated with drag queens or with you know various pop culture elements but there are plenty of things that I actually didn't totally realize had entered the mainstream and that were such like hallmarks of lesbian in-group you know signaling right and I think that's partly because this is something that I think is both caused by and then frustrates lesbians because our culture and our communities are pretty opaque mm-hmm. that we don't want people to see us. You know, lesbian bars were the ones that for the longest time had the, you know, the the window was dark so you couldn't see through in the way that gay bars always used to. And then a lot of gay bars put clear glass and you could see mm-hmm. in and like nothing going on there anymore. So take a look. You know, women's bars are for women. They're for lesbians. And, you know, lesbians don't want straight women or certainly not men in their bars. And that's just a symbol, you know, that they we want our own space. We want not to be looked at. And at the same time, we get frustrated when then people don't know us and don't know our culture. And I feel both sides of that. Yeah, I've definitely you know, I'm of the view that um, people who are not queer women shouldn't go in queer women's bars. But then I also get really frustrated when there is, you know, even though now, for example, there are quite a lot of presentations of queer women on television, in in scripted television. But there are very, very, very few butch women in that presentation. And when there are butch women on television, they tend to be straight. Um, Or they're in prison. Right. (laughs) Orange is the new black. That's right. Um, And so there are, you know, some of it is just about misogyny or sexism. Um, And that people don't actually want to see us, you know, let's just accept for a second, which something which seems so obvious to me that I think might be controversial for some people is men don't want to know about people who don't have any interest or need in men. And so Mm -hmm. women who live in women centered lives tend not to be the subject of much genuine inquiry or much Mm -hmm. genuine reflection. And so, and and we get frustrated, but at the same time, we crave it. And a community of choice, right? As opposed to like, if they are forced to be in jail, we can all get down with that. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's messed up. Uh, Even something like the L word, which, Uh uh, you know, long after it's been off the air, it's still an object of identification and obsession in queer women's communities. That wasn't an accurate depiction of most queer women's circles. I mean, they all looked alike. They all, mm-hmm. almost all of them passed as straight. I mean, 
the vast majority of queer women's groups that I know of, groups of friends, have at least one or two more, you know, gender queer or butch or, you know, masculine of center members. And, and that TV show succeeded because it was hot, straight looking women having sex with hot, straight looking women. And uh, I think that is one of the reasons why, you know, it's, People were really surprised when I published the piece about how carabiners are a calling card for lesbians. It was like, what? You know, this little key that I didn't even know of, which, like June said, you know, makes me really pleased in a lot of ways and also is frustrating because it's a culture that when other people don't see it, we don't see it either. Right, and, right. and that's aggravating. Why do men and lesbians have more keys than I do? <laughs> I only have like two we ride time. bikes. <laughs> That's a great question. That should be subject to further inquiry. I mean, yeah. historically, it's been because uh, lesbians were attracted to and also pushed into masculine blue collar professions that required keys, like uh -huh. you know, being mechanics and postal workers. And today, I think it's just a, a point of pride. Like, look how many tight locked up spaces I can get into. <laughs> Yeah, all I've got is like my male key and my regular key. See, I'm I've with often you. wondered this. I'm with you. I'm also You need a woman. more keys. I'm a woman of very few keys, but I'm also like I I think a lot of people based on my appearance think that I'm butch, but I'm actually so not butch. I'm just a cross-dresser, <laughs> and so I have very few keys too, and I also don't have a carabiner. Um, Do you have but, a purse? Wow. No, I would have I no I idea would... you were gay, June. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I certainly don't have a purse. No, and I've never worn a skirt. I'm like, I'm, I'm totally— You abstain from it all. They're just loose across... in your pocket? I'm, Where are your keys? Yeah, they're in my pocket. Yeah. I've just got a lot loose? Of... Yes, loose. I've got pens How? in my pocket. I've got That's keys unsafe. in my pocket. I've got phones in my pocket. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't wear tight pants. Well, you'll more easily sneak up on an unsuspecting lesbian than I will with my keys jingling <laughs> off exactly. my pants. Exactly. I'm silent. As you both sort of pointed out that there's this, the when you see lesbians portrayed in mainstream you know, media and culture, you get the sort of version that has some element of the male gaze involved, right? right? And there's something about, as you pointed out, June, the feeling of not wanting to be looked at because being looked at, to be looked at in our culture is to be looked at with male eyes. Right. And there's something about how do you get culture at large to see you, but without over-prioritizing a type of attention that can feel totally oppressive or just beside the point. I think that's very well put. And I definitely think that's why some women are so unwelcoming in the few spaces that we have. Um, and I think is actually one of the reasons why it is hard for them to stay in business. Um, but it is because there have there are all these kind of fake and inaccurate and weirdly sexualized presentations of lesbian sexuality that actually has nothing or very little mm -hmm. to do with lesbian sexuality. And so then you think that every time someone looks or sees you, for example, kissing another woman, are they seeing it in this TV way or movie way or, you know, soft focus poster way instead of in a normal way. And mm -hmm. I think it's one of those, not to exaggerate my own burdens, which are, are slim, uh, but, um, you know, it is one of those kind of things that weighs on you that you don't, in a certain way, you both want to have a presence for political and for just to, to be seen. We all want to be seen. And at the same yeah. time, there's a big feeling of, I don't want you to see me that way. And if I can't really control how you see me, maybe I better stay in the shadows. And that's weird. It's, yeah. hard. it's hard. It's, it's, and 
I think it's easier just to, okay, I'll stay in the shadows. I'm for, certainly for, you know, in a historically uh, lesbians or the women we now call lesbians have, for other reasons, chosen, tended to do things um, on their own. You know, but there were never that many women going to lesbian bars because women couldn't go to bars, mm-hmm. um, any kind of women. Uh, and then because of the kinds of jobs and the fear of losing jobs, women tended to socialize like in their homes. They would have circles of friends who would do things in their homes. And that is for many, many reasons. It wasn't so much because of, you know, sexualized images of, of lesbians, because that wasn't a thing back then, I don't think. But the reason might change, but the thing continues. So this mm-hmm. kind of marginalization, partly by choice and uh, at the same time regretted. My theory with um, bars, or I guess this isn't necessarily about queer female bars in particular, but it's that weird paradox where, well, straight bars need women, obviously, or not obviously, but they do. But if you don't have men at your bar, you never sell the quantity of alcohol to keep the prices at a reasonable rate, which is why I began to notice this and become weirdly obsessed with this because every time I've been in a gay male bar or a predominantly gay male bar in New York, I'm like, holy shit, these are the cheapest <laughs> drinks I've ever seen. How is this happening? And so and I how are the men drinking all this? Yeah. yeah. And then literally some dude was like, it's because we drink like way more than you guys do. So like they don't bother with all of the like mixers and stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't know what this tells us about yeah. female spaces. That Once. is a really important reason, I think, why lesbian bars have had trouble staying in business. And yeah. women earn less money, so yeah. they spend yes. less money on They're drinks and cover charges. Yeah. They earn less money and just, like, physically don't have as a space in their stomachs <laughs> on average. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I did a whole series on gay bars some years ago, and I talked to a lot of gay bar owners or people who had owned gay bars over the years. And, you know, one of the economic challenges was, People, when they go to a gay bar, they want a strong drink and they want it like surface tensioning. They want the glass <laughs> to the brim full. And it's a weird economic Why? challenge. It's like that's what you that's part that's just of what the, you do. Yeah, that's that's what you expect at a gay bar. And a gay bar that didn't do that would have problems drawing a crowd, I guess. Wait, June, do you think that my theory about men drinking at a large enough quantity to power that is I, that real? I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I have that, I don't know what to do with this knowledge, I know, though. No, I know. Because then I'm like, the cheapest bar is always the gay bar. Oh, I'm a woman. Now what? <laughs> um, that's why I think the successful queer bar of the future will be a restaurant or something during the daytime ah, and a lesbian bar at night. Because you can't ah. survive on just selling drinks to women who can't consume as much alcohol and who make less money and who also have probably been conditioned to not get as shwasted when they get out in public because it's not safe for women to right. be shwasted out in public. Maybe it should be a co-working space during the day. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I feel like then, I don't need dudes talking to me when I'm trying to work during the day. You know, right. I, could, I could deal with some more like. Oh, so you want a women only co-working space? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm just coming up with this on the fly, yeah, guys. No, that's good. That's I good. haven't thought it through, but yeah, I feel no that there could be something for that. Yeah. <laughs> the hung jury in D.C. used to be like a bar where legal types hung out during the day and then a lesbian bar at night. And then one oh time God. I remember a friend like being told, <laughs> uh, this is not your time right now. Like, <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I'm with my boss. Hush. Wow. That's a great name for a bar. Oh, I love that like duality. Mm-hmm. There was for a while a bar that was sort of a restaurant and like cocktail-y stuff. And then 
became progressively more lesbian as the night went, which I recall because I can't remember the name of it now. It switched ownership. I recall because it was very near to um, New York Magazine's offices. And so sometimes I remember going out with an editor elsewhere and we just went, you know, to grab a couple like cocktails. And at some point we, you know, drank a little more than we needed to, (laughs) stayed a little longer. And all of a sudden around like 10 p.m., literally a beer pong table emerged out of nowhere and it turned into like NYU, like very, you know, like college lesbian drinking games. Oh my God. And at this point, the friend that I was meeting with literally turns to me and she was like, Maureen, I've never told anyone this. I was the recruitment chair of my sorority at like my massive state school and I'm going to put my wedding ring in my pocket and we were going to beat these girls at beer pong and it was really intense given what you just said about yeah. queer spaces yeah. and not wanting other people in them I will say the queer space came to us and when it came right. um, I think it was perhaps less about sexuality as just like New York college girls oh yeah you go to Tish you're going down watch this beer pong <laughs> and it was really intense and I learned so much about her that night that like a ruthlessness that I didn't know existed awesome <laughs> So I'm curious to bring it sort of back to a less beer pongy, less beer pongy. Yeah, (laughs) there has to be a beer pong moment in every episode. We are recording this shortly before the inauguration (laughs) of our 45th president. And I'm curious for each of you, what's most on your mind for your community, be it worries, optimism, work, the desire to curl up in bed and not (laughs) look at things. Um, I guess I'm just wondering what's floating in your mind politically right now. June, do you want to go first? Sure. I have to say, I think I was less freaked out than a lot of people that I communicate with on on the reg. Maybe because I'm older and I have lived through administrations uh, on both sides of the Atlantic that were not friendly or not uh, positively uh, disposed towards our communities. In some ways, I think that it's a great motivation to organizing and resistance and activism uh, but I do have some fears. I'm very, I'm going to say I'm very afraid of because I think that gives him too much power. But Mike Pence, he's, yeah. he kind of terrifies me. And I, I'm not afraid for myself. I feel like I'm, my bubble is fairly secure. I mean, I worry about things like my crappy insurance getting even worse. Uh, so in, yeah, I have some personal, but I'm not worried about my personal safety, whereas I do really worry about trans people, especially trans people of color, especially poor trans people who don't have family resources, who don't have any resources. And I, the way that, for example, Loretta Lynch just set a tone of we have your back and we're watching you and we mm-hmm. will, we're aware of you, we see you, felt very powerful. And that absence feels very scary. How about you, Christina? Oh, June. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I agree with uh, with June that you know my life as far as uh, my queerness goes will not be affected as much as say my more masculine presenting partner and friends as our city is filled with <laughs> uh, people who admire Mike Pence's stances on queer folks. Um, Ugh, what does but, it feel like just to be in D.C.? Like, do you feel the oh, mood it's disgusting? Shift? Everybody is everybody is glum here. One of my best friends in D.C. is a transgender lawyer who works with uh, queer and trans asylees and refugees mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, getting them proper documentation and healthcare and various other critical needs. And I know that while a lot of us queers and gays 
fret over our marriages or the nasty looks we get on the street from Trumpkins, people's lives will be severely and critically threatened by policies that Donald Trump and Mike Pence will enact that have nothing to do with queer people specifically, but queer people mm-hmm. will bear a disproportionate burden of of those policies. Um, so I fear for undocumented queers, uh, mm-hmm. queer refugees. But, you know, there are things to be optimistic about. I think as far as cultural representations go, like June said, there's been more queer people on TV than ever, and and everyone watches TV. Mm-hmm. I think Transparent in particular has been a really authentic representation of queer communities, unlike most other shows that I've seen. Um, now we just have to get people in Mike Pence counties to watch it. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Um, One more thing. Every week we ask our listeners to call in um, about the topics that we've talked about. I'm curious, listeners, about what secret in-group signaling you do or don't respond to? Like, are carabiners a go-to for you, lesbians in the audience? Do you know for sure, like, taking one look at somebody, that if you see a certain certain type of purse, that it's not going to happen? Um <laughs> I already have the answer to that question. Wait, what is it? Tell us yours. And then, then we'll those, have people call in and those tell us. Those bags, I, I saw them everywhere. Like the preppy girls at Georgetown wore them. I think they're called Long Chomp. Long Champ. Oh. They're like a, a solid color with like a brown leather strap. They're and like then it's like bag. parachute material and they can be folded oh up. There's going to be a bunch of lesbians calling in saying that, no, they have that bag. But for me, <laughs> if I see that bag, like, no, no way. So that number is 646-494-3590. Call in with your in-group, out-group signaling techniques, lesbian or otherwise, or just knowing if someone's going to be down. Like I always said when I was on Tinder that I was like, if someone says, let's do a coffee date, I just know they're not my people. (laughs) I've really gone like deep on the beer thing, but I'm just like, just daytime coffee date feels like a job interview. That's just not the way I date. So any kind of signaling you've got, give us a call. If you have questions in particular for June or Christina, we'll make sure to get in touch with them, too. That number is 646-494-3590. You can call and leave a message. So thank you so much. Um, Our guests have been June Thomas and Christina Cotarucci, both of Slate and Slate's Outward blog. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you so much. Was my beer pong story really inappropriate? Is that rude? No. Okay. No, no, no. By no means. Like you said, the queer came to you. (laughs) Yeah, you couldn't help it. You couldn't help it. Just never go there again. (laughs) 